Hello and welcome to our third video all about pensions jargon. If you haven't seen the first two, then, then why not? Um, we'll put a link in the description to this video and you can find them on our website. Just go to the resources area and type jargon in the search box and they will pop up. Um, I'm really pleased to be joined by someone that knows far more about pensions than I do. Uh, James, could you introduce yourself, please? Certainly, yes. Good morning, Richard. It's uh, James Jones Tinsley, self-invested pensions technical specialist at Barnet Waddingham, LLP. And thank you very much for, for joining us again today, James. I feel like with this third instalment, we're kind of almost going into the realms of dictionary corner or countdown now, aren't we? With some, some obscure <laughs> phrases we're going we're to come up with today. Um, so some of these are, are quite old and some of them are still around. Um, but yeah. let, let's dive straight in then uh, with the first one. Let's go with Ferbs. Right, okay, Ferbs. Ferbs stands, I know it sounds like a toy, doesn't it, that yeah. uh, <laughs> you can buy at Christmas, but a Ferbs was a funded, unapproved retirement benefit scheme. And essentially what it was, was a funded, unapproved occupational pension scheme that an employer used to set up to provide top-up benefits for certain employees who were caught by effectively the pensions cap, which was a pre-A-day term limiting the amount of benefits that they could obtain. Now, the use of the word unapproved makes it sound a bit sort of dodgy, uh, but it literally was because the Inland Revenue, HMRC as they were called at that time, um, did not approve these type of schemes. And before A-Day, schemes had to be approved in order to get all the wonderful tax benefits that, that pension schemes are allowed. So because they were not approved by the in the revenue, they were unapproved. So there was nothing wrong with them. That's just the fact uh, of the, the two state, if you like, that they were unapproved at that time. Now, Come A-Day, no new firms could be set up from the date of A-Day, 6th of April 2006, because of the way that the pensions tax legislation changed from that date onward. But going back to pre-A-Day, what the employer would do is they would enter into a contractual commitment to pay retirement benefits on behalf of the individual employee, and then they would make payments to actually fund that scheme for the relevant time. Um, what a FERBS effectively was, because it was unapproved, was a discretionary trust with no investment restrictions. And, and literally by that, you could put anything into a FERBS, including a residential house, a yacht, a racehorse. I'm not saying I saw this done, but, you know, just talking theoretically. And the contributions going into the FERBS were taxed on the individual employee as a benefit of in kind at their basic rate of income tax, which arguably could offer a potential tax saving if that individual employee, which is probably very likely, were at that point in time a high rate taxpayer. So that's what a FERBS was. Yeah, I used to do a few of these um, before A-Day. Um, and yeah. they, were, they were effective. Um, we used to do them with kind of offshore life companies. That That's how we tended to do yes. them. They were effectively an offshore savings plan. So, yes, you paid uh, tax and national insurance on the way in, um, but then the fund would grow virtually tax-free. And then you could take the money out uh, without tax as well. There's no 
kind of maximum mm. tax-free cash restrictions. It would just take the whole out if you want to, um, yeah. or use it to buy an income. Um, but yes, but they, they sadly no longer um, were available after a day. Although there's some nope. are still out there. Um, you know, there, there are. Yes, there. I was working on one last month actually. Um, so really. Still out there. So, so well, that I have was one a colleague. I'm oh, sorry, I was just going to say, Richard, I do have a colleague who specializes in FERBs and, and, and is dealing with a lot of historic ones uh, that are coming to the point of being wound up and everything. So, yes, they do still exist out there, which is why I think it's important to mention them in, in this particular session, uh, if any of our paraplan friends come across one. So a FERB actually had something in it, which might be you know, like a, a savings plan or it could be a yacht or a horse. But there was something else, wasn't there, that actually didn't have anything. It called an herbs with two U's, so yes. U-U-R-B-S. <laughs> yes, or an herbs, which made, made it sound a little bit like uh-oh. But uh, an herbs was an unfunded, unapproved retirement benefit scheme, essentially the same as a FERBS, but as the name suggests, they were an unfunded occupational pension scheme that an employer used to set up a future lump sum benefit promise for an individual uh, employee. And in the same way as FERBS, no new ones could be set up from the 6th of April 2006. Now, what happened here is the employer entered into a contractual commitment to pay a lump sum at retirement for that individual, but they did not make any physical payments to fund that promise. Instead, they, the aim was that they would pay out a lump sum to that employee at their retirement. Um, and again, they were not approved by the Inland Revenue at that point, hence the use of the word unapproved again. Uh, but what the employer could do was deduct benefits paid to an employee from its liability for corporation tax. And I'm certainly aware of um, one herbs that uh, we dealt with where the company effectively carried over the future benefit promise or lump sum promise in their accounts over several years until the point at which it was paid out. Yeah, they, these are effectively, it's it's a promise, isn't it? It's a contractual promise a prom by it an employer is. Absolutely. to pay yes. something, be it a lump sum or you know, a regular stream of, of payments to somebody at some point in the future. So you've got to have quite a bit of faith um, in the employer. They're still going to be there yes. um, and, and still going to pay it. But uh, yeah, we've been involved in some of these where there have been very large companies and, and they were set up for, yeah, again, people were maximum funding up to the, the pension caps as they were pre-A day. Um, and, and they had these in place. So yeah, herbs um, is another one to go inside the firm. So so let, let's kind of travel forward to now then. And we've got um, EFERBS, E-F-R-B-S. Um, so yes. take us through those. <laughs> okay. Well, an EFERBS, uh, with no U, is an employer financed retirement benefit scheme. And these are legal trusts commonly used by companies as uh, a flexible way of providing retirement benefits for directors, shareholders, higher paid employees, people like that. They were introduced by the Finance Act of 2004 um, and an e is a pension scheme that is not a registered pension scheme. So just in the same way that we had pre-A-Day, the difference between approved and unapproved, post-A-Day we now have the concept of registered or unregistered in terms of uh, defining which 
pension schemes are eligible for the, the usual tax benefits of saving through a pension. Now, for those who are watching this who really like their legislation, if you want to actually find the statutory definition of an EFRBS, uh, that's you need to look in section 393A of the income tax brackets, earnings and pensions, close brackets, Act 2003. Um, now, it's possible for a FERBS or an ERBS to be treated for tax purposes as of same tax purposes as, as an FERBS since the 6th of April 2006, if it didn't apply for registered pension scheme status at that time. Yeah, they. Um, I, I think the the um, sort of finishing comment I'll say about these is if you come across one of these, then then seek help. <laughs> I think because uh, they're still they're quite rare. Um, you know, they are out there. So if you come across one of these um, herbs, uh, herbs or ephrobs, then um, seek some help um, because they're they're quite tricky things. Um, but again, you know, being a good power plan is not about knowing all the answers. It's knowing where to go to find all the answers um, and knowing when you've got to ask a question. So. Let's steer our, our jargon ship um, back towards some kind of more familiar territory. Let's talk about kind of defined benefits. And let's talk about one that, again, is not that common, but I see catch a few people out. Let's talk about cash balance schemes. So, so what are these? Right. Um, well, under the legislation, there is a difference between a cash balance pension arrangement and what's called an other money purchase arrangement and the difference the main difference is the calculation of the amount available for the provision of benefits to or in respect of the scheme member now where you've got an other money purchase arrangement which would include you know for example a personal pension plan or something like that the pot is calculated wholly by reference to payments made into that pension scheme either by the member and or by their employer um, and also of course then the hopefully the investment return that you you earn along the way but for a cash balance arrangement the pot the member's pot is not calculated wholly by reference to the contributions that are made by or on behalf of the member instead all or part of the member's pot is promised or guaranteed and so it's not wholly calculated by reference to the physical amount of money in that pot at the point of turning on benefits and the amount that goes into this pot in a cash balance scheme year by year whether it be actually or notionally is fixed and that's regardless of what the scheme does with any of the actual contributions that are made so you've got this concept of a promise or a guarantee, which is unconnected, if you like, to the amounts going into the scheme. And ultimately that pot will be then available to provide benefits to the member, but it's that uh, break, if you like, or that disconnect between contributions going in and the potential promise or guarantee that a cash balance scheme offers to the member. It's related to a more conventional um, final salary scheme, which we'll come on to in a second. So that yeah. um, instead of instead of building up, you know, a pension to be paid in the future every year with service, you build up a lump sum. 
which is then available um, to be used to provide you with benefits in the future. And typically the, the lump sum is revalued in line with inflation capped at 5% or 2.5%, whatever it may be. Um, so that, that's how the growth, if you like, is, is allocated to, to the fund um, as you go. And one thing to watch out for on it, two things actually, um, if a member um, wants to take benefits early, there will be an actuarial reduction um, to allow for the early payment of the benefits uh, yeah. in the same way as, as a final salary scheme would do. And you don't need the same FCA permissions to advise on transferring out of a cash balance scheme as you do with the defined benefit final salary scheme. Um, so watch out for that one. Um, <laughs> yes. Which takes us nicely into um, more conventional um, final salary defined benefit pension schemes. And, and something we get asked quite a bit is what's the difference between final salary and career average? OK, well, I think. My starting point here is to actually focus on what a defined benefit scheme is. So let's take it down to basics. You'll see it often represented as using capital letters DB, defined benefit pension scheme. And at the end of the day, what it is, it's an employer sponsored workplace or occupational pension scheme. And the amount of pension that a, a scheme member will receive from their normal retirement date under the scheme will be based on how many years you've been a member of that scheme and also the salary that you earn either throughout your career or when you leave or retire and I'll come back to that shortly. So the reason why they're called defined benefit schemes is because a person's pension is therefore defined by reference to a benefits formula rather than by how much money you accumulate in your pension pot when you actually come to take your benefits from that pot. In that situation, the contributions are defined instead, and that's why you get things like SIPs being classed as a DC or defined contribution arrangement. So that's the difference between DB and DC. DB pensions do pay out a secure income for the rest of that scheme member's life, once they've uh, left the scheme, which increases each year by reference, a bit like we've just been talking with the cash balance scheme, increases in the pension each year, either by reference to inflation or another specified percentage. And I think typically an individual, if they have worked for a large pension, uh, sorry, private sector employer, throughout their working life, or particularly if it's somebody who's worked in the public sector, where the you know, majority of uh, schemes are DB schemes. And the employer does carry a large responsibility to make sure that uh, not only they contribute to the scheme, but those contributions, uh, with the help of actuaries, make sure that that scheme remains appropriately and sufficiently funded in order to pay each person who's retiring from that scheme their pension income for the rest of the life and it may well be a requirement in the scheme rules for the individual employee to also make mandatory contributions to that scheme as well when the, uh, the person dies the, the scheme member dies then uh, db schemes usually continue to pay a pension to a surviving spouse, civil partner or dependent, and that can be both pre-retirement or pre-normal retirement date and also post-normal retirement date. So going back to your original question, Richard, there are two types of defined benefit pension that um, our paraplanner 
friends will come across in their final salary schemes and career average schemes. What does final salary mean? Well, as the phrase suggests, a final salary pension is based upon how much that individual was being paid at the point that they either leave the scheme or retire from the scheme where they're still working for the employer at retirement. And I think it's not always the case, but you could say that typically a person will be earning the most either immediately before or at the point of retirement. So hopefully that will then mean that they will be getting as, as good a pension as possible from that scheme. Now, career average pension schemes, again, as the phrase suggests, are based on an average of an individual employee's salary throughout their working career as a member of the scheme. And it could well be, again, with cash balance in mind, that those annual earnings are revalued over the course of that person's career in order to try and maintain their real value. And so what you might find is that the scheme the, mem the individual is a member of could be referred to as a career average revalued earnings scheme or more likely a care scheme in, in block capital. So if you come across the word care, that's what that stands for, career average revalued earnings. Now, I think looking at the DB landscape, um, most or men, not mo most, many of these schemes have either been closed to new members or to all members in recent years, which is largely attributable to the ever increasing cost of running one of these schemes. And once the person gets to retirement, they either get their, pe uh, their benefits from the scheme, either wholly as an income or it could be as a tax free cash sum and an income which may be reduced if if the tax-free cash sum is coming out of the the starting income amount and i think just my final uh, point on this is that the quality of benefits that these type of schemes provide and and and, and they are good benefits means that you'll often see them referred to in the media as gold-plated pensions that's that's the phrase that's typically used or or sometimes depending upon the <laughs> political uh, slant of the paper a fat cat pension <laughs> yes or oh, the rolls royce of pension schemes i've seen quite a few times yeah, as well that's a good um, one as well yes. yeah and a lot of the um the public sector schemes like the nhs scheme or, or the current version of it have switched over to care haven't they so that, that's where yeah. it's most prevalent um still a lot of the private companies that, that are still running final salaries or on on a final salary basis so Brilliant. So you mentioned there that, um, that the benefits are often linked to what someone was being paid, but there are some other things that can be included when calculating the benefits, can't And that, that brings us this wonderful statement, fluctuating emoluments. <laughs> yes. What's that? Thank goodness me. What a good, very good question, Richard. Well, in order to provide the answer to this question, I actually dusted down our copy of what was known as IR12, which were the pre-A-Day occupational pension schemes practice notes that were drawn up by the Inland Revenue, which, as I said earlier, was the forerunner to HMRC today. And the reason I did that is because those practice notes, and this is, you know, one of two books that we sort of lived and breathed by in the pre-A-Day years, um, had a series of definitions in there and fluctuating emoluments was one of those definitions. And I, if you will excuse me, Richard, I'm going to read directly from the practice notes uh, just to tell you what 
they were or how the inland revenue were defining them at the time. So fluctuating emoluments are any part of an employee's earnings which are not paid on a fixed basis and are additional to the basic wage or salary. And they include profit-related pay, overtime, commission, bonuses or benefits in kind as long as they are accessible to income tax. And the reason why they were used is because fluctuating emoluments could be or could form part of a scheme member's final remuneration, which was another defined term in the practice notes, in order to then calculate their retirement benefits from that final salary DB scheme. Now, to avoid abuse of somebody receiving loads and loads of fluctuating emoluments in the year that they actually retire from the scheme, what was done was the figure that was ultimately used for these emoluments was the yearly average of those emoluments over three or more consecutive years, which ended no earlier than 10 years before the date of retirement. And the practical reality of that uh, allowance, if you like, were, meant that detailed records had to be kept for that individual member for up to 13 years before their date of retirement so that you could go back in time and work out the best three years, could be more sometimes, for that individual, which would then feed into their final remuneration to subject to revenue limits, get it up as high as possible, which would then dictate the pension that they received from, uh, from that particular scheme. Mm. Now, this, this may sound like ancient history to some of our younger parents watching <laughs> this, but, but it's still relevant today. I remember having my IR12 um, copy in the office um, and, and getting my calculator out, you know, pre-AD and going through the best three ending, the last 10 and working this one yeah. out. So why is it relevant today? Well, what we're finding more and more now, and this is going to get worse, I think, as time goes by, is that people that had membership of pension schemes at AD back in 2006 that are now looking to take benefits are often asked the question if it's an occupational scheme or the seeding scheme is occupational, um, have you got enhanced tax-free cash available? Uh, and they're often sent these questionnaires by the providers asking for, you know, your income, your bonus, your fluctuating emoluments in, in the 13 <laughs> years prior to ADES. That's going right the way back to 1993, isn't it? Um, and most people go, hmm, I don't know. Um, and if, if, you, if you can't prove it, um, you don't have evidence, then you're not going to get yeah. it, basically. So... You might see this as a paragraph to come up quite a bit. That this is why we thought we'd bring this one up today. So yeah. it is still relevant today, even though there's legislation from a dim and distant past. Um, it's still got a relevance inside there. Um, so thank you for that one. I love that phrase, fluctuating emoluments. <laughs> I've always liked that one. So let's just wrap up then with with one last thing, which is another great phrase that I hadn't heard of before until you mentioned it, James, which is straddling your pension input periods. <laughs> it's okay. It sounds painful, doesn't it? Um, Yes. Well, again, I'm going to have to look, go back in time a little bit just to set the scene. But um, a pension input period or a PIP uh, is the phrase which dictates the start and the end dates for a period in which pension contributions that are either made by you or on your behalf are measured against your annual allowance, money purchase annual allowance or tapered annual allowance depending on what you're subject to so effectively what it does is it says okay in this particular pip this is how much was paid in and 
make to make sure that that doesn't exceed what you are allowed to have paid into the pension scheme in order to get tax relief on those contributions. Now, again, we're going back to A Day for the starting point of this. The first PIP ran from the 6th of April 2006 to the 6th of April 2007, and then subsequent pension input periods ran from the 7th of April to the 6th of April. The reason why these dates may sound a bit odd and I'll say this this is in the immediate post-A-Day period, is because the sort of golden rule for any pension arrangement was that you couldn't have more than one PIP ending in a tax year. Now, that was all thrown out of the, uh, <laughs> out of the window come 8th of July 2015, when the newly elected Conservative government had an emergency budget, and what they ultimately did was make pension input periods be aligned with each tax year from the 6th of April 2016 onwards. And I won't go into detail here, Richard, but there was a very strange period from the 8th of July to the 5th of, uh, of April 2016, where there were in fact two separate PIPs going on in the same tax year. So that golden rule was broken. So these days, the crucial thing is, and it may be some a reason why they don't necessarily have the importance that they used to have, is that all PIPs are aligned with a tax year. And arguably, they should have done that from A-Day anyway. It would have made life a lot more simpler because prior to the 8th of July 2015, there was a lot of flexibility over how long a PIP could last. As long as you didn't breach that golden rule, it was possible to have a PIP that lasted a day. Now, the problem was, and I was certainly, I remember this because I was advising at the time, when you had somebody who had, you know, two or three different pension arrangements, it wasn't uncommon for each of those individual arrangements to have their own specific PIP based upon when they first started contributing into that scheme. And so trying to sort of set them up one, one, uh, alongside each other and then work out how much contributions they could still pay in that tax year uh, that you were working in could become incredibly complicated. So it was great in a way that we were or that we are now in a situation where a PIP has to follow the tax year. OK, the reason why straddling PIPs came about was when um, the newly elected coalition government in 2010 started with their austerity program and certainly pensions were low-hanging fruit at that time and what they said was that okay the annual allowance for the 2010-11 tax year was somewhat amazingly now 255,000 pounds but from the 6th of April 2011 that was reduced right down to 50,000 pounds and if you have somebody who has a PIP that started prior to, and it's an odd date, the 14th of October 2010, but then ended in the 2011-12 tax year, and the total input for that PIP exceeded 50,000 gross, then you could, said, you could be said to be straddling um, those two tax years. And in order to make sure that that individual didn't suffer an excess income tax charge, then it was important that the calculation identifying what their annual allowance was and what contributions were made within that period of time, 
that had to be demonstrated in writing in order to make sure that HMRC didn't clobber that individual for exceeding £50,000 in the 2011-12 tax year. So it sounds incredibly obscure, but it's quite possible somebody might have gone through that during their working life and their contribution history. So again, I think it's, I think it's important just to know how flexible PIPs could be, uh, certainly before the 6th of April 2016. Yeah, I remember the days of opening and closing a, a PIP on the same day to get uh, a lot more money into a pension a lot quicker than, uh, <laughs> than you can do these days, um, yeah. definitely. It's uh, it's hard to believe we're 17 years into pension simplification, isn't it? <laughs> it's like, oh, is that what more, it's called? <laughs> yeah, got more complicated since then than I ever thought it would do, but uh, well, there we go. Well, we've um, we've covered a lot of pension jargon in, in these yes. three episodes, um, and there might be something that a paraplanner out there still wants us to cover. So if there is anything, get in touch and let us know. Um, yeah. And I'm sure James will be happy to come back if you can find something even more obscure than what we've covered today. <laughs> uh, but for now, that's it from us. So massive thank you to Barnett Wadding and James in particular uh, for sharing sure. your, your insight and dusting off your copy of IR12 there um, <laughs> and joining us to share um, some explanations around jargon. But that's it for us. So, so goodbye and see you all again soon. Bye.